Father, as we do that, I pray that this morning your spirit would be active among us and would be um, reminding us of your work in this church, in this congregation over the last 30 years and the rich history and tradition that we have here. And uh, open our eyes, Lord, to, um, to believe what you have for us in the future, that we might be trusting of you and um, moldable and pliable in your hands and willing to be led by your Holy Spirit. So take this time now and use it for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, every fall, um, our elders and our ministry leadership team go away on, a, on an annual fall retreat. And our aim is always to, you know, strengthen our relationships with each other and with the Lord. And uh, we usually go down in the Hocking Hills somewhere, and so it's a nice setting. And, and it also is conducive for kind of getting in a zone together and tackling an issue, a ministry issue that we want to talk through and and have the time to do that. It's always a great time, but last year I decided to switch things up a little bit and, and depart from the norm, and uh, in advance of our retreat, I, I asked our team members, I said, hey, I want you to come this year ready to share your story with the rest of us, okay? And uh, they kind of looked at me like, whoa, okay, this is different. And I said, you know, to, to prepare for that or to help you prepare for that, think back through your life kind of scroll back through your own personal history and try to identify seven defining moments in your life that shaped you and, and made you the person that you are today. Events, encounters, decisions that impacted you deeply and uh, maybe changed your life or changed the course or direction of your life. And so when we did come together then, it was, it was just a blessing to, to get together with my teammates and hear each of them share their story with the rest of us. I, you know, I just love stuff like that. I love hearing people's stories. I love hearing the unique, unique ways that God has worked in their lives to direct their lives. It was, it was a great time. And when you think about it, it's a very interesting exercise to do. If you've never done that, if you've never identified the, the defining moments of your life and maybe even written them down somewhere, I encourage you to do that. Without a doubt, there have been some defining moments in your life. There have been. You're the person that you are today in large part because of those events, those decisions, those happenings, those circumstances that shaped you and, and molded you. You know, when I think back on my life, when I scroll back through my own life, several defining moments come to mind. I think of that moment back in the first grade when one day the principal of our elementary school walked into our classroom and, and kind of startled me by asking me to come with her. Now, usually that's not a good thing, right, when the principal comes and pulls you out of class. And I remember very distinctly, she marched me down the hall and deposited me into a second and third grade combination class where all of a sudden this shy, skinny little kid had to match wits with these older kids who were already shaving and had their driver's licenses. <laughs> At least that's how it felt to me, big old hairy dudes, you know. And from that moment on, I was set on a new course in my life of always being a year younger than everybody else in my class every year. And as a result, feeling like I had to prove myself, like I had to prove that I really belong there. It changed my life. It was a defining moment. I think of that moment uh, a few years later as a teenager when my first real girlfriend, you remember your first love? My first real girlfriend, one Sunday night after church service, walked up to me and handed me a note and walked away. 
And with trembling hands, I opened up that note and I read these words, Steve, I am sorry, I just don't love you anymore. Don't ask me to explain why, but it's over between us. Ouch! Oh, that hurt, that horrible feeling of being rejected just kind of stuck in my gut. And honestly, I sunk into depression for about a year over that. And I count it as a defining moment because for the first time I realized something. I realized that if you build your life on what other people think about you, whether or not they like you or approve of you, you're always going to be on shifting sand. It was a defining moment for me. I think of the time a year or two later when a couple of guys from a Bible college stayed overnight at our house. They were part of a musical group that was on tour, and they had come to our church, and they were singing there, and my parents were being hospitable, and they had arranged for them to stay with us, and uh, they had them sleep on a pull-out sofa in our family room, which, unbeknownst to the two guys, was right adjacent to my bedroom where there was louvered doors between us. So I could hear everything that they said, everything that they were talking about, and late at night, guess what they were talking about? Girls, and uh, one of them I was having a relationship issue with, with a, a gal that he was dating, and I'll never forget, they were talking, and, and the other fellow said, hey, let's just stop, let's just pray about this right now. And they did, and they talked to Jesus about girl problems, in a way that let me know that they believed that Jesus was real and was listening to them, and it impacted my life deeply because I knew they had something I didn't have, but I wanted it. So there was some reality with Christ there. I think about other moments, like the day I should have died (laughs) at age 18 when a drunk driver hit me head on. That was a defining moment in my life. I I think about the day shortly after that when I felt prompted to leave my home in California and get in my little yellow Mazda and drive 3,000 miles across the country to go to a little fledgling Bible college. That was a defining moment. I think about the day when I was there at that college, standing in the lunch line one day, and I looked across the hall through the plate glass window into the receptionist's office for the school, and there was this cute, pretty little blonde-haired girl there with this twinkling eyes and big smile and happy face and I remember thinking I wonder if I'll ever get to know her that was a defining moment because I did get to know her and the rest is history I've been with her for 36 years defining (laughs) moments (laughs) so I've got some defining moments in my life you do too you have some defining moments in your life and you know what churches have defining moments did you know that If you go back through the history of a church, you'll discover there were certain events or certain decisions that that were made that kind of set that church on a course or altered the course some, defining moments in the life of a church. And I don't know if you know this, but this weekend here at New Life Church, we are marking the anniversary. We are commemorating a defining moment in our church's history. It was 30 years ago today, the fourth weekend in July, that we held our very first worship service right up the road at Gehanna Middle School West in the band room of all places 30 years ago today. And uh, man, it was an amazing day. It it was quite a thing. We had been praying and planning for that for several years. We'd moved here in June and uh, we said, God, you know, if this church is going to happen, we don't know anybody. So you're going to have to bring people. And lo and behold, 66 local Gehanna area adults came to our very first service that day 
And uh, who knows, you might see some familiar faces in there as you look at those slides. Yes, that's Pastor Brian leading out in worship. And um, it was an amazing day. You know, I have a, a soft spot in my heart for people who've been with us all of these years. And there are a number of you. And I know you probably got an invitation already, but today we have a founder's picnic at Friendship Park right after this service. And if you worshiped with us in the school days, you were in the band room or the cafeteria or the auditorium there worshiping with us, you're invited to that picnic right after our service this morning in the shelter at Friendship Park. It's going to be a great time. And we thank God. I think we'll be forever grateful to the Lord for bringing us in those early days a group of people who had a pioneer spirit about them and who were willing to take a chance on a bunch of 20-somethings with... Uh, with a lot of zeal, but not a lot of experience. And uh, we are grateful for those risk takers and thank God for them. You know, as I thought back about how New Life got started, I was reminded that in, in preparing to come here, we had put together um, a document that had what we called ministry principles um, on that document. And, and they were things that we wanted to infuse into the life of this church right out of the chute kind of like laying the groundwork for a brand new church. And we hope that living those out would really set a healthy tone for this startup congregation. We actually taught those ministry principles in our new members class for the first six or seven years. And in preparation for today, I went back and pulled out my old binder and pulled out a copy of those principles and blew the dust off of them and went back through and reviewed them, and, and I decided I wanted to share them with you today with a few brief comments about each one, because I really do believe that these principles created the climate, uh, the, the atmosphere of this church, and after looking at them again, I would, I would contend that they've continued to influence us right up to this day. So reach in your worship folder and, and pull out your study notes for today. Um, there's a lot of them, so I'm just going to touch briefly on them. Don't get nervous. Um, as I walk through them, I, I ask myself a couple questions. Like, do I still believe this? Is this still a conviction with me? And, and also, what have we learned about this over the course of the last 30 years? So let's walk through them together, and we're going to read them aloud, okay? That's why I didn't put any blanks in this week, so we can read them aloud together. So let's go with number one. Here we go. Number one, our driving motivation must be to do all to the glory of God. And when I read that now in 2015, my heart still says amen, just like it did back then. That scripture there says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. I do think our understanding of God's glory and what it is, I think our understanding has developed and deepened over the years, but making Jesus famous is still our heart's cry, right? That's what we want. And like some of the other principles, I think this one has a reactive element to it because even back then, even in, we were only in our early 20s, we had encountered some churches and some ministries that seemed to be all about glorifying a man, making a man famous, making, you know, putting his name in lights, and we'd seen the results of that. We'd seen the devastating, the devastation, I should say, of building a man-centered ministry. And, and our belief was, we don't, we don't want that. You know this, to put a pastor on a pedestal is a bad idea. It's a bad idea. Have you seen in your lifetime the, 
the hurtful, disillusioning, disenchanting results of doing that. All men have feet of clay. There's only one person that we want to keep front and center in the life of this church, and that's the perfect one, Jesus Christ, right? Only Jesus. We wanted new life to be a God-centered church. Number two, say it with me. Nothing of eternal significance ever happens apart from prayer. And that's a quote from a dude named E.M. Bounds, who lived back in the 1800s, an extremely holy person. He wrote a bunch of books on prayer. We read his books in preparation for coming here. And you need to know that this church was built on prayer. Fervent, faith-filled, persistent prayer. It was. Before we ever came here, our team, and we started this church as a team, our team would meet in one of our apartments before we ever moved to Columbus, and we would pray together, and we would plead with God and ask God to build His church, His way, for His glory in Gahanna, Ohio. This church was built on prayer. When we did roll into town in June of 85, before we knocked on any doors, before we handed out any flyers, remember there was no internet back then, or at least we didn't know anything about it, before we did any of that, we prayed. In fact, we came together, when we moved here, we came together every night for 30 days as a team, and we simply prayed. We pleaded with God, we begged Him, we reminded Him of His promises, we yielded to Him, we submitted to Him, we asked God to do what only God can do. I still believe in the power of prayer. Do you? You know, there are several people in our church family who I believe have prophetic gifts. And um, they have let me know they believe the Lord wants to ignite a deeper passion for prayer in this congregation. One of my friends here believes the Lord gave him a vision recently where he, in this vision, saw you. He saw the people of New Life gathered not in here but outside the building, in fact, holding hands, encircling the entire building on the sidewalks, praying. Praying Satan out. <laughs> Deliver us from the evil one, God. Praying heaven down. God, give us an open heaven here. Pour yourself out on this place in an unhindered way. Manifest yourself and your power in this church and in this congregation and through us to this city. In his vision, he said, I was kind of up above the church and I was looking down on this ring of new lifers calling out to God. Well, that's a powerful vision, isn't it? Another prophetically gifted person told me of a dream that they had recently that these new campuses that we're starting in, in Whitehall, and we're starting to pray about where God would have us go next, would, they were going to be nurtured and cared for and caused to grow through organized, intentional, deliberate prayer of God's people. Prayer, a huge priority in the, in the life of this church. Speaking of that, in, in three weeks, you know, we went to Whitehall last uh, August, I think it was, and we prayer walked through that community. Um, Pastor Claude is excited about the fact that in three weeks we're going to do that again. And if you'd like to participate, you can make a note of August 15th. It's a Saturday morning. We're going to go back to Whitehall. We're going to prayer walk through the neighborhoods again. This time we're going to leave something on people's doors, letting them know about a new church that's in town that they can be a, a part of, a spiritual family that, that loves Jesus. We want to go back and do that again and set more groundwork in place through prayer. 
Oh, that new life would always be a church filled with the prayers of God's people. Oh, that that would happen, where we cry out to the Lord, more of your grace, God, more of your power, pour it out on us, pour it out on our city, have mercy on us, because we need the Lord, don't we? Nothing of eternal significance ever happens apart from prayer. Number three, read it with me. Every believer must take every opportunity to evangelize every lost person at every possible opportunity. You know, I was at the bank this week and uh, talking with a banker there about bank things. And uh, all of a sudden, and I didn't force it, all of a sudden the conversation turned to spiritual things. It turned to the Bible. You know, sometimes we think nobody's interested, nobody wants to hear, and it's not true. God's working in people's lives. All of a sudden this conversation turned and we're talking about the Bible. <laughs> and he said, you know something, I got a question. He said, do you, do you believe that the Bible is factual? What do you think I said? I said, yep. So I've banked my whole life and eternity on the belief that the Bible's telling us the truth about us and life and death and everything. He said, well, that's where you and I part ways then. He says, I just can't buy you know, Adam and Eve, seriously, Jonah and the whale. I said, well, okay, that's where you're at. At least you know where you're at, right? I said, well, could I ask you a question? He said, I talk to a lot of people about the Bible, and, and I think a lot of people are confused about what the main message of the Bible is. So uh, could I ask you, what do you, th what do you think the main message of the Bible is? He thought for a minute, and he said, Ten Commandments. So that's he said, I like the Ten Commandments. If our society just lived by the Ten Commandments, it would be a better place. And I said, I, I totally agree with you. I said, so you believe in the Ten Commandments? He said, yeah. I said, they're in the Bible. He said, I know. I said, well, that's God's law. You believe in God's law. That's awesome. I said, that's, that's half of the main message of the Bible. That's great. What do you think he said? What's the other half? <laughs> I said, look, you and I need to get coffee soon so we can dive into what that other half of the main message of the Bible is, and we, we set that up. You know, not everybody is disinterested in spiritual things. God's working in some people's lives, stirring up curiosity. He's using circumstances and situations to do that. Some people are hungry. We just need to listen to the Holy Spirit to direct us. A few months ago, I was riding my bike. I like to, to bike, and I was out on a bike trail. It was hot. I'd finished. I was coming back to the house, and uh, it's hot and sweaty and gross. You know, I'm just wanting to get back to the house and get a shower and clean up, and I turned on to Forestwood, and I saw out of the corner of my eye an elderly gentleman on his porch, and he was kind of sitting like this. And I just drove by because I was on my way to go home, get a shower, right, clean up. And I heard this voice in my head saying, go tell that man that I love him. And I'm like, seriously, Lord? I'm gross. I stink. <laughs> He's not going to want to hear that from somebody like me right now. And I kept on riding, and the further I rode, the more intense that little voice got. I want you to go back and tell that man that I love him. No, no, I can't do that. That would be weird. I kept writing. Finally, it's like, this is the Lord, right? <laughs> Turn around, you know, drive up his driveway, right up next to his porch. And I, I looked at him and I said, sir, I, I, you don't know me and I don't know you, but I was riding by and I saw you and God told me to come and tell you that he loves you and he wants you to know that. And he looked up at me and his face was just beaming. 
and his eyes were moist. And he said, thank you, I needed to know that today. And then he said, are you a minister? <laughs> I'm like, do I look like a minister? Do I smell like a minister? Uh, yes, I am. But, you know, if, if every single one of us just was attuned to the Holy Spirit in us, we would hear him direct us to this person and that person and this person and that person. Maybe every day there would be someone he would lead us to, to just love on them with the love of Jesus, maybe just listen to them, and maybe if the door opened to speak a word for Christ. Every believer must take every opportunity to evangelize every lost person at every possible opportunity. I believe that. I believe that. Number four, read it with me. The saints. See the bold-faced parts there? That's where you're supposed to like give an extra emphasis. So, the saints are to do the work of the ministry. The pastor's job is equipping the saints to do the work. Now, that's not the New Orleans saints. That's the people of God. The Bible calls us saints. Did you know that pastors are leaving the ministry in droves? Did you know that? I read a statistic that said 4,000 pastors a year, that's just in the U.S., are saying goodbye to their calling, goodbye to the ministry, and deciding to do something else. That's sad to me, and I, I've often thought about why that is. Just this week, somebody I know told me they're like, I'm going to go back and get my teaching degree and switch professions so I can have a little bit more financial security in the future. You know, when we were in college, we were exposed to Ephesians 4 in the Bible, where Paul lays out God's pattern for how ministry is to get carried out in the church. And basically it says this, God is going to give to his church gifted leaders. Those leaders are to equip the saints, and the saints are to do the, the work of the ministry and the church will then grow in health and in number. That's basically what it says from Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And while that is in the Bible, that's really not what we had seen in our limited experience up to that point in our early 20s. What we had seen more was exhausted pastors trying to keep up with everybody's needs but feeling like failures because they weren't keeping up. We'd seen church members not maturing much in their faith because they weren't being challenged to step up and become equipped and minister to each other. Most churches we had seen weren't following the Ephesians 4 pattern, and the result was people, church members, who were underdeveloped and pastors who were burnt out. And we just figured, you know, when you're in your 20s, I mean, we just figured God's smarter than us. We ought to try to follow his pattern for how ministry is to happen in the church. His way is the better way. Have you discovered that yet in your life? God's way is better? So when we taught this early on. We, in those days, we call it member-centered ministry as opposed to pastor-centered ministry. And we would always use, as an illustration, because we lived in Ohio now, the Buckeyes. And, you know, the oh, fall season is about ready, not too far away, right? It's going to start, and we'd always talk about the Buckeyes, and we'd say, look, the Buckeyes have coaches who coach and players who play, Right? The coaches are there to train and equip and condition the players and set the game plan and that sort of thing. And the, the players are the ones who are out on the field, you know, running the football, making the tackles. Coaches coach, players play. 
And when that happens, and when that happens well, then the ball gets moved upfield and we score touchdowns and beat other teams and win national championships. Like that's the way that it's supposed to work. You wouldn't want to see Urban Meyer on opening day standing at the goal line, like waiting for the opening kickoff with the Buckeye players over on the bench, you know, cheering them on. Come on, coach, do it. I mean, that's a scary picture, isn't it? A 50-year-old guy, well, he'd get demolished out there. And we would teach this. We'd say, you know, this God's plan for the church is similar in that he gives gifted leaders to the church to coach and equip and train and set the game plan. And it's the saints, the people of God who are in the game making the first downs and the tackles and so forth. And in those days, that was a revolutionary concept to a lot of the people who were coming to our church. And we're like, wow, we've never heard that before. It's like, well, it's, it's in the Bible. And maybe if we did it God's way, then God's people would grow and develop in maturity and pastors would love the ministry and not be burnt out all the time. And of course, in the class, someone would always raise their hand and say, well, do, 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 do pastors do any ministry then? Or, and we'd say, well, sure we do because we're Christians. We're saints. <laughs> Does this make sense? This is why we're insistent here that God's people get connected in a small group. You get to know each other and start to minister to one another. And you serve in a ministry here. Bless the family of God. When, when the church is working the way God designed it to work, it's a beautiful thing. Yes, Ephesians 4 is still true. <laughs> Believe this one. Number five. Read it with me. The absolute first prerequisite for any and all places of leadership is godliness. One's continual growing love relationship with the Lord. So now these principles start to talk about leaders in the church and who gets elevated into leadership. And we were convinced that talent is not enough, not in spiritual work. Having a charismatic, dynamic personality is fine, but it's not the prerequisite for leading people spiritually. Again, I think this principle was born out of seeing the wrong kind of people elevated into leadership in the church and seeing the devastating and hurtful results of that. In the church, it's godliness. It's growing in Christ-like character. Other traits are fine, and, and they can be helpful, but without a growing love relationship with God, a, a leader has nothing of spiritual value to offer the people. Much of pastoring, according to the Scriptures, is being an example. So much of leadership is being an example. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 2, be examples to the flock. Live it. So this one remains crucial. It was then and it, and it is now. Number six, read it with me. People are to be ministered to and matured, not manipulated. You can tell again, this one was a reaction to some things that we had seen. We'd seen the effects of leaders who manipulated people and powered up on them rather than loving on them and equipping and maturing in them. And so from the outset, from the beginning, we sought to reject the heavy-handed, top-down, autocratic leadership style that, that ends up wounding people and disillusioning people. You know any wounded people wounded by the church, wounded by spiritual leaders? You know, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2 embraced a leadership model that was more like a parent model. He said, hey, we were among you like a mother, gently 
nurturing and caring for you. And we were like a dad urging you and challenging you to live up to your calling. The parent model. Most of us respond better to that kind of leadership than the top-down, heavy-handed kind of leadership. Wouldn't you agree? So many people we've met through the years have been wounded by priests and pastors and spiritual leaders who manipulated them. Last night I was watching on CNN. They're doing, a sp- they're doing a special for some reason on Jonestown and Jim Jones and all of that, and <laughs> it just reinforced in my mind, man, <laughs> let's get as far away from that kind of leadership as possible. So we'll never have Kool-Aid out there in the, in the lobby. This is a timeless principle. It should stand for the ages. People are to be ministered to and mature, not manipulated. How am I doing on time? Okay, I got a motor here. Number seven, sheep, read it with me, need to be fed a strong, authoritative, lively, practical, consistent, systematic, expository diet of the Word of God. Man, that's a lot to live up to for a teacher, isn't it? Do you know what? We believe that input is everything around here, that what we take in through our senses is so important in determining the kind of people we are. And what we're challenging each other to do and have for 30 years is take in the Word of God. You know, my study break every year, I set aside some scripture that I want to memorize, and I do it old school. I write it out on cards, you know, three by five cards, and seek to memorize the Word of God. Why? Because I want, I want to think the thoughts that God's thinking. I want to feel the emotions that God feels. I want to make the decisions that the Lord would make. This is so important, taking in the Word of God. I was having lunch with a New Life brother, I think it was about a week and a half ago, and in the middle of our wonderful Chinese food lunch, he said, uh, hey Steve, I just want to thank you and the other pastors at New Life for bringing us the Word. He said, um, you know, years ago I went to a church that preached at me but didn't teach me much. He said, I love the fact that every, every week I leave new life having learned something about the word of God. We need God's word. It's our nourishment. It's our sustenance, right? And so in our, with, in our adult gatherings and children right now, you can go to any of these classrooms. The teachers in there would be teaching God's holy word, even down to the little ones in the nursery. Now, our newer learning about this, I would say, is that we want to connect everything that we teach in the Bible to Jesus, because Jesus said the Bible is about me. That's what he said, and so we're looking for the Christ connection, whatever we're teaching through. The next three weeks, we're going to teach through John 15 together. I am the vine and the branches. Easy connection to Jesus. He spoke it. Beginning with the startup of the school year, the new ministry season in the fall, we're going to teach through the book of James, the entire book, and we're going to find the Christ connections in each of those scriptures that we walk through. It's going to be great. This commitment to teaching and explaining God's word has not wavered, I don't believe, in 30 years. I believe very strongly in that. Number eight, say this one together, we must strive for excellence as far as possible, All things are to be done decently and in order. Physical organization and planning can prevent spiritual breakdowns. I would say this. We do believe that excellence honors God and inspires people. However, we don't worship excellence. We worship Jesus, who is the only excellent one, right? We've seen that there are some dangers that can creep in if excellence becomes like the overarching dominating value 
in the church. We don't want to fall into the trap of perfectionism because guess what? We ain't perfect. <laughs> There's only ever been one perfect, and he was perfect for us. So there's a balance here, I think. We, we want to have an atmosphere of grace, right, where every member of the body of Christ is valued just for their intrinsic worth and being created in the image of God. We do urge one another to serve the body with skill. Think about an orchestra or a band members who didn't have much skill. It would be painful. We're grateful for those who offer their gifts and hone their gifts and serve with excellence. At the same time, we want to allow the freedom to make some mistakes and to be imperfect, right? <laughs> it's a delicate balance that takes maturity to fully embrace and implement. Number nine, a leader is one who knows where God wants him to go, can take others with him. He is a servant dedicated to sacrificing in order that others might succeed spiritually. When my sons were younger, I tried to teach them this life principle. You become successful by helping others become successful. That's what our Lord did. He laid down his life so that we might be truly successful in life. You know, it's a sad thing when you encounter a person in life whose whole life is all about trying to get you to, to notice how awesome they are. I mean, that's just futile, isn't it? True success is laying down our lives for the success of others to push them ahead of us. That's what our Lord did. That's the principle of servant leadership. Even the secular world is now embracing this concept of servant leadership in the marketplace because they've seen the impact of it. So thank God for Jesus. That's the way of Christ. Number 10, the one thing that is most needful is one's close relationship with Jesus. Do you believe that? That came out of Christ's comments. Remember, he was with the sisters, Mary and Martha, and Martha was all harried and busy and anxiety-filled trying to prepare the meal, and Mary, her sister, was there sitting at Jesus' feet listening to him. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, Mary has chosen the better part. Mary is doing that which is most needful, which is sitting at my feet. Martha, I can create food, you know. I could speak and fill up the dinner table. I'm here. Spend time with me, the one thing that's most needful. You know, I have a lot of friends who had a Catholic upbringing. And one thing I hear from them often is this. Steve, I, I'm thankful to now have learned about being born again and to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That didn't get through to me much in my upbringing, but I, I'm glad to know that the essence of Christianity is knowing God, like having a relationship with him through Jesus. We're going to see in John 15 that when we come to faith in Christ, he calls us friends. Friends, beautiful friends. The essence of eternal life is to know God through faith in his son. And if you're here today and you are not yet enjoying a relationship with God, I need you to know that that's why Jesus came and died. So that you could be forgiven of your sins, so the barrier of sin could be removed, so you could have access to God through faith, through faith alone. It's a beautiful thing. Number 11. Every new convert and reclaimed believer are to be followed up and discipled. You know, when I read this one, I thought, we can do better at this one. 
There's room for improvement here. And I think part of this is going to be creating or pressing deeper into our culture this, this idea that, that having a mentor or, or getting together with someone for mentoring and sharpening is just part of what we do. It's just the normal and natural thing I do as a believer in Christ is I meet with brothers or sisters in Christ and we sharpen one another spiritually. And I don't know that's as deep in our culture as, as the Lord would have it and we're working towards what that could look like and we have some, some pretty cool things planned because we want everybody who comes into the family of God we don't any, want anybody out there on their own, right? Just kind of like, well, I'm trying to make it, you know? Just some connected and deeper relationships where they're being helped along the way. Number 12. Our ultimate objective is the fulfilling of the Great Commission. If you were to ask me why new life has gone to the effort and sacrifice that it has to help nine other churches get started over 30 years... I would say this. Jesus commanded us to go and make disciples. You say, why are we involved in France with the Akins there? And why are we involved in Makono and Uganda? Why are we involved in Costa Rica? And our team just got back this week safely. It's because of this. We want to be involved in making disciples, helping people become followers of Christ, right? Everybody look at me. Time is short. We don't have forever. Jesus is coming back. Heaven is real. Hell is real, and it's hot. (laughs) Judgment is coming. The cross happened. Forgiveness has been purchased. The tomb is empty. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He sent the Spirit to his church so we would be empowered to take the message to lost people who need it why we're here it's why god didn't just save you and zap you and take you right up into heaven but he left you here and he left me here eternity is a long 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 time i was with a family yesterday and the man is dying and he said i got seven siblings and two of them aren't saved yet steve he said if i die I want you to preach my funeral and I want you to look at my siblings and tell them they need to be saved and trust Jesus so they'll be in heaven with me one day. I said, gladly. I will gladly do that. This is it. Jesus commanded his followers, go make disciples of all nations. I believe this more strongly than 30 years ago, probably. But then look at 13. Godly Homes and families are essential for a strong church. You know what? When you're at home and you're always fighting and bickering with your spouse, you don't give a rip about the Great Commission, do you? I've been there. You're always, your kids, you know, you're all crosswise with each other and things are all snarled up at home. You don't care about the Great Commission. You're just trying to survive and get through the day without tearing each other's eyes out. And I understand that. I've been there. When things aren't good at home, nothing else matters that much. I think New Life has done okay in this area through the years, but recently we've been challenged to get more deliberate, more intentional about being a better resource to husbands and wives and dads and moms as you face the daily stresses of family life in this day and age. And it's different in this day and age. It's different. It's different than it was 10 years ago or 20 or 30. 
So I'm excited about some of the new initiatives that Bill Robbins, our marriage enrichment director, is working on to help spouses connect with each other more deeply. I'm excited about Pastor Brett and his desire to to kind of expand our resources for parents as we seek to raise our children for God and for Christ. It's going to be cool to see how those things flesh out over time. And as our culture moves further and further and further away from God's ideal, God's design for the family, and that's happening, right? It's the church that's going to have to stand for his truth in this area and do it graciously, but stand firm and be a community of grace that serves as both a refuge for the hurting and a resource center for families. There's a lot more I could say about that, but I don't have time. Number 14, believers are responsible for loving and ministering to one another. Kind of, kind of said that in several ways already. I heard uh, just last week about a family in our church who gave a car to another family in our church. Like, we need a car. We have a car. Here's a car. It's yours. That's cool stuff, if it was a good car. <laughs> um, hope it was. You know, just from my vantage point, I regularly hear about meals being made and prepared for people who are, um, you know, just coming home from the hospital, that sort of thing. Children being watched, gift cards being given to others anonymously to meet a need. Grass being mowed, prayer being offered for job situations, tears being shed over the loss of relationship. And I think all of that is pleasing to God, don't you? I think that pleases the Lord. I think it's the heart of Jesus. We call it being a brother's keeper kind of a church or a sister's keeper kind of a church where we do care for one another and we do feel a measure of responsibility for each other's health and well-being and, and lives a good thing, a godly thing. I didn't miss any, did I? Did I skip over any? Okay, I'm in sequence. Last one. All policies, programs, and plans must meet the criteria, is it biblical, is it God-honoring? Let me ask you this, how do good churches get off track? It does happen. You know how it usually happens? It's usually a series of little things. I mean, sometimes there's the big blow-up, but, but more often it's just this slight deviation from the Word of God, just a couple degrees off. But you know, it's kind of like a golf swing, or at least mine. You know, if you're a couple degrees off at the face of the club, you're 100 yards off down there. You're in the weeds, right? It's, it's a, it might seem like, oh, we're just fudging a little bit here. We're just giving ourselves a little permission over here. It's no big deal. It's just a, off a couple degrees. Then 10 years down the course, you're way off. That's why we put this in here. Everything we do must meet the criteria. Is it biblical? Is it tied to Scripture? Is it undergirded, underwritten, supported by the Word of God? Is it, does it honor God? Staying anchored to biblical truth is critical for the health of a church. Well, we made it. So what do you think? Are these foundational principles that we established 30 years ago, are they still valid for today? I think they are. Just walking through them this week, the Holy Spirit was nudging me in a few areas. Maybe he did that for you too. 
You know, three decades ago, the leadership of this church made a conscious decision to strive in the power of the Holy Spirit to become a healthy church. If we never became famous, if we never became well-known, if we never became a, you know, mega church, that's okay. If our pastor's faces never graced the front of a conference brochure, that's okay. We wanted God to work here in such a way that there was health. And out of that health, we knew would come growth. The Bible says the church is a body, and what, the body, what a body needs the most to function well is to be healthy. Some of you know that <laughs> very well. And so that decision way back when to, become, to aim at becoming a healthy church rather than a popular church or a hip and cool church or a massively huge church, I think... We're the beneficiaries of that decision made many years ago. Now, we're not a perfect church. We're not. I tell people all the time, if you're looking for a perfect church, keep looking. We're not it. I don't think you're going to find one. <laughs> and if you ever do, don't join it because you'll mess it up. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, I don't know about you, but I pray that the Lord continues to bless this church with health and growth for many years to come for his glory through winning many people to Jesus and discipling them. Amen? So what do the next 30 years hold? I have no idea. We're on an adventure with Christ. The last year's been quite a run. We've held 1,560 worship gatherings. Actually, 1,559 because that one got snowed out in the late 80s. <laughs> Let me finish by asking you personally a question. What? Can you identify what the Lord is saying to you today, now having walked through these? I know what the Lord is saying to me. What, what's he saying to you about your part in contributing to the health and life and growth of this church? Did anything kind of stand out when we walked through it? Maybe prayer. Nothing of eternal significance ever happens apart from prayer. Is that the area? Or helping people focus on the glory of God so that we remain a God-centered church or Maybe getting more equipped yourself to minister to others in the body. Maybe taking God's word in on a more regular basis and fortifying and nourishing your soul through the word. Maybe strengthening your walk with Christ or, or making sure you don't miss opportunities to share with others when God opens up the door to, to walk through it and speak up for Christ when he opens up that door. Maybe it's learning to lead like Jesus leads or being a mentor or or seeking out a mentor for yourself, or maybe just availing yourself of what new life offers in terms of marriage enrichment and parenting resources. What, what's the Lord saying is your part today in contributing to health and vitality and life and growth in this body for the next 30 years? Take a moment, would you? Listen to God, and as I pray for you, write it down in that little box. What is today's takeaway for you? Let me pray and ask God to make it clear. Thank you, Lord, for being with us for more than 30 years. Your presence is what we most need and desire. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for covering our errors and flaws and faults and sins and mistakes with the blood of Christ. Thank you for the measure of health that we have enjoyed all these years. Lord, may we not be content and satisfied in that. May you keep propelling us out further into our city and into our world with the only message 
that can make sinners right with you. The glorious gospel of Christ. May every person within the sound of my voice today be um, have clarity with regard to what your spirit is saying to them right now. What's that area in their life? Put your finger on it. Place it on their heart right now. If there's been something like that for you this morning, would you just slip your hand up? Yeah, there's something that God talked to me about as we walked through those principles. Would you slip your hand up? Many, many of you. Lord, see our hands. Work in our lives, I pray in Christ's name.